Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Abby Salome, CMO and Managing Director of Case IQ, where she leads the firm's brand and media strategy, corporate communications, channel marketing, and all great things. Abby has over 20 years of experience in independent wealth ecosystem with prior CMO roles at places like Hightower, as well as Private Advisor Group. Welcome, Abby. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have you. Growing up for a lot of us, you know, we all had like that job as a teenager or as a child where we said, hey, if when I grow up, I want to be X, Y, and Z. And like, oddly enough, marketing professional, like just doesn't make the kid list. Like, what was it that you wanted to be growing up? So that's so funny and so true at the same time, because I didn't know I was going to fall into marketing until probably 10 to 15 years into my career when I actually just pivoted into marketing from more of a sales and strategic role. And as a kid, I don't think I had a clear vision for what I wanted to do. But as I got a little bit older and I started reading and learning more about finance and economics, it became clear to me that that was an area that really interested me. So, you know, my entree into this world was through the lens of financial services, really. Yeah, I took a stint through financial services as well and sales. So it's funny, you know, the kind of the common paths that we both took to end up working in marketing. But, you know, on that point, like I I talked to a lot of young kind of earlier career marketers and some of the best advice that I've been given in my career is don't be afraid to jump around to different functions because I actually think that the best marketers have spent some amount of time selling themselves just because marketing a lot of the times ends up being this theoretical exercise and really where the rubber hits the road is between the person that's talking to the person that's potentially buying the product. And that's really like where the heart of being able to understand emotionally somebody's needs and emotionally like how a solution could help them improve their life And you're really like, that's where purchasing decisions end up getting made. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I think in my case, you know, I've been on every side of kind of this independent wealth channel ecosystem. So I've been a financial advisor myself. I have built financial advisory businesses. I've been a sales capacity selling to financial advisors. And then I've also been in kind of this marketing role where marketing either to financial advisors or helping financial advisors market their own selves to their local communities and beyond. So it's great to be able to see things from a different viewpoint, to be able to give that lens to of credibility to understanding what the user is actually experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, a lot of marketers this year on the finance side are really thinking about like flexibility in their plans this year because there's a lot we've been through three years of unprecedented instability and i think at this point everybody acknowledges that there's really like no end in sight to our and instability where we magically turn into it's a normal year again 
like how do you operate in that space as you're thinking about your objectives, your budget, and kind of what your priorities are? Well, I would say that prioritization is huge, right? So I'm fortunate enough to work alongside an executive team where we're super collaborative in uncovering and making decisions around priorities. Of course, those always shift depending upon the markets. And even just in normal day-to-day business, the markets are very volatile right now. When you look at equities and bonds and then what we do, which is alternative investments. But I think at the end of the day, what really matters is can you track the ROI for your investments that you're making, especially as it relates to marketing. So Mm -hmm. being able to have an attribution model that can tie back the investments that you're making into the different marketing areas back to profitability for the organization is definitely paramount on my list of things to be able to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that what's really interesting in the work in the space that you're in is you guys are to an extent almost like a category creator in terms of being able to bring awareness of alternative investments to the market in a year where traditional equity environment has seen ups and downs. Like, how do you then position alternative investments as potential upside, or how do you actually show the benefits of that tactically? So as you mentioned in my intro, I run a business within Case called Case IQ, in addition to being the CMO. And Case IQ is a tech-enabled education platform. And at the end of the day, alternative investments are not scary, but you do need to just understand what you're investing in and what the risks are. So by having an education platform that's intuitive, that's smart, that's tech-enabled, that uses a multitude of different medias to educate people. I have a team of learning designers that are trained in the science of learning. So we create courses on different alternative investment asset classes. And then for every product that's actually on our platform, we have a specific course for that as well. So I think leading with learning is probably the biggest key to understanding anything and especially when it comes to complex investments. Yeah, and I think that's really like what's fundamentally changed in marketing the past five years in terms of like content marketing, because traditionally, if you were to back up like five, 10 years ago, when somebody said content marketing, they were really talking about like the white paper that a company was putting out. And like, I don't know when the last time that you've read a white paper is through and through, but for me, like it's been a while, right? Like multimedia content has gotten cheaper to be able to produce. There's no way that you and I could have jumped on. We're using StreamYard to record this today, but like that technology just didn't exist five years ago for $29 a month. Anybody can essentially produce a TV show on the internet. And I think that's one of the incredible things that has happened in marketing in general is a marketer's ability to be able to produce high quality educational content that connects with somebody in a different way than that it used to be. You know, even I remember talking to the co-founders of a company called Kiss My Keto and their core marketing strategy was they put out this thing called the Keto Academy or it was like Keto 101 where it was literally a three hour free course that anybody could go onto their website and take. And they said that that ended up being one of their best growth strategies because people discovered their site trying to learn more about keto and what a place to be if you also are the manufacturer of all these snacks that taste like snacks, but they're actually keto. 
That's super interesting. And I do think the accelerator here was also the pandemic, right? So when everybody had to shift all of a sudden to a work from home environment and figure out how to engage and interact with one another, I think that accelerated everybody's need for digital communication, digital publishing, things that maybe were available, but not so used before this, right? Right, right. No, I completely agree with you because in the past it would be like, there were early adopting teams. Like there are teams that were on the cusp of that already heading in that direction. And what the pandemic did was overnight, it moved all the companies that would have been late adopters to the strategy and it made it so that it was essentially the only thing that they could do. So they were almost forced to to move in that direction. I think like remote work is another example of something that just like dramatically accelerated and will be interesting over the next few years is how much that pulls back as you see, you know, large financial institutions, for instance, saying, no, you know, Goldman Sachs is a work in person environment. And if you want to continue working here, we'll see you in the office. Right. I know it's super interesting. I mean, my office is in New York City. We're in financial services. We have not mandated anything. Uh, we typically see people do come in because they like the in-person engagement. And I'm usually in the office a couple of days a week. Today, I'm not. But there's no mandatory requirement. I do think for the younger generation, in order for them to learn interpersonal business skills, like the water cooler talk or the coffee talk that happens when you're passing through in the cafe, there's some benefits there that maybe have been missed over the last couple of years. So hopefully a hybrid environment will be the future of many organizations. Now that we know that we can be equally as productive, or even in some cases more productive, I don't know about you, but when I work from home, I typically start working a lot earlier and I end a lot later because there is no distraction. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of years. Yeah, getting rid of a commute for sure is a game changer for me where I've had some years where, you know, commute wise, depending on where I was living and working, I mean, that could have been an hour and a half each yeah. way on the tail ends of things. And I agree with you that the organization that I'm a part of right now, like we're, we're a remote first, but hybrid option if you're in one of our hub cities. So if, if we have a presence in that city, you know, it's essentially just hybrid environment. And we haven't gone so far as to say, like, these are the strict days that somebody has to come in. The team has kind of organically gravitated towards Tuesday, Thursdays as the days in. And then you have a core group that will come in on Wednesdays, too. And then it's just kind of generally accepted that Monday and Fridays are just remote days. And that's actually done for me, like some really great impact on my work is then on Fridays, I'm much more meeting light than I would be on the other days. And so anything that I really want to like sit down, focus on and like have a few hours where I'm not distracted, I end up having that flow time where I could potentially go 90 minutes without a distraction, like really focused on on one thing, which for me is just like the best way to go in, into the weekend is to be able to crank out like that really meaty thing at, at the end of the week. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little jealous because I would say that that 90 minutes doesn't happen for me, except on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's just you got to put it on the calendar and you got to try yeah. to protect it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You got to defend the space, right? Yeah. yeah. You got to put that 120 minutes and then you got to defend as much of it as you can. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are the other changes that 
really for marketers, like really hit right at the end of the year. Like what a, I'm not sure if it was a gift or I'm not sure if it's just like Pandora's box that OpenAI just released with ChatGPT. Yeah. But take me back to that moment where you first heard about ChatGPT. What did you hear about it? And like, what was your first interaction, like actually sitting down and typing something into it? Yeah. So, I mean, this is an area that I've been incredibly intrigued by as of late. And it's funny because a friend of mine does PR for OpenAPI. And she was telling me about this like months ago. And she was like, this is going to change the universe. This technology is going to change the universe in ways we don't even know. And I was like, interesting. And she was telling me about it in the sense of artwork that's being created that is like replicas of some masterpieces. And then I started researching more about chat GPT and firms like copy.ai. And for those of us in marketing who have content writers and graphic designers and have teams of creative services people, you know, it could be a real threat because I decided I needed to write a blog on something. And I'm like, let me just check this out and see how it works. And with very little input, the title, the tone, a couple of key statements of what I wanted it to write. It turned out a beautiful blog post that I was actually really impressed with that didn't need all that much wordsmithing and editing to make it perfect. But then I had that moment where I was like, wait a minute, am I plagiarizing somebody's work here if I actually use this? So I haven't used it yet because I don't know how I feel about it, but the technology itself is remarkable. I mean, it's just remarkable. I know you had a similar experience, right? Yeah. So I usually am on top of these things and I really didn't dig into it until about the middle of December and it was released at the end of November. I think what's tough is like in the tech, in the early adopting like tech community, the last thing that everybody just jumped on in droves were NFTs. Right. And so when you come out of like, first it was Clubhouse and then it was NFTs and you kind of have two things that just lost steam. Yep. It's hard to get excited about the third thing that comes out, especially when the third thing is described as like the fourth renaissance. That's a big claim. The fourth <laughs> renaissance. That's a huge claim. And so for anybody where this is your first time hearing about this, there's a, was a nonprofit transformed into a not nonprofit. Elon Musk was the co-founder. I think he had divested from it because of conflicts with Tesla and it's the next generation of AI, but it's analyzing billions and billions of bits of information to be able to detect patterns between topics and words. And what's different about this AI compared to past AI, it's like past AI, a lot of it were just complex decision trees. And like Google is doing a search of common trends and showing you something that was already written and already published. What ChatGPT is doing is it's actually predicting the next word or phrase that might complete a sentence. And so what it's generating is original, technically original. Right. And so you can take something that's a copy, a paragraph that's generated by ChatGPT, 
and Grammarly has a plagiarism tool built into Grammarly and it'll come back like 99.5% clean. Or as many high school students have found out and college students have found out, like it passes a lot of the plagiarism tools that teachers and professors are using today, which should kind of sparked this arms race now where you have plagiarism detection tools, but you also have AI detection tools now, and it won't make it past the AI detection tools because the AI detection tools are using GPT-3 or 3.5 as well. But that's going to be like a continued arms race. And OpenAI has already said that they're going to put a watermark into the text so that unless you know how to change that watermark, there's basically like a secret Easter egg in there that, that marks it as generated by AI. But you know, I want to share kind of up on the screen here a review that I had written. So I was out with some coworkers. We were in Johnson City, Tennessee, and we went to this bowling alley that was called Tiebreakers. And Alyssa, our waiter there, was so awesome. And at the end of the dinner, you know, we're getting ready to order desserts. And she mentions kind of casually, hey, would love it like if you could leave a review. So one of my coworkers and I both pulled out our phones and we had a contest with so three people at the table wrote a review. One person like wrote it by hand, <laughs> the, the old school way, I guess, with the old school way is like actually writing your review. And the two of us threw it into ChatGPT. So this is the review that I came up with. And I think my prompt was something like write a good review about tiebreakers in Johnson City, include as many bowling puns as you possibly can. That's and so terrible. it came up with tiebreakers in johnson city tennessee is a bowler's paradise not only does it have a state-of-the-art bowling alley but the food is also top-notch Alyssa, our waiter was a real strike see what i did there and like the see what i did there like was something that the bot added in there like i didn't even add that commentary in there in terms of service she was attentive and made sure our experience was a perfect score the food is definitely worth the trip even for non-bowlers i highly recommend the salmon salad not something you would expect to be really good at a bowling alley it was grown to perfection. It actually really was with ju the just a right around of seasoning. It was a real knockout dish. Overall, tiebreakers is a striking combination of the fun and tasty food. It's a real split second decision to check this place out. And I just attached, you know, the selfie here of our team. But it's almost baffling that that was written by AI because I'm not sure I could have came up with that many bowling puns. I was going to say, I think that's better than something I could have written myself for sure which is pretty impressive and pretty scary at the same time, right? Right. And this is kind of like the extent of like the application that I've played around with, but I solidly think if I were to do this for two years, I might be able to get Yelp Elite status and earn that badge. Actually, that's not a bad idea. Right? <laughs> <laughs> see what happens. We can yeah. have a little competition here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Abby Vincent, 2023 goals, Yelp Elite by the end of the year. And so... Like Abby, like you lead a marketing team that generates content, whether it's an in-house team or really, gosh, even like marketing agencies that you're hiring for content. Yeah. What would be your reaction if one of your employees came to you and, and said, hey, here's the first draft, just full disclosure, you know, GPT helped me write it. I mean, I think I would be like, I love it. As long as there's no concern from a legal perspective you know, I have mixed emotions about it because I also feel like there are people who write who I have copywriters on my team, right? Does this mean that we're enhancing their abilities or does this mean we're removing 
that ability and just replacing it with technology, which, you know, I mean, that's what happens in this entire world. Innovation leads to creation and to disparity among certain types of workers. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this evolves, copywriting and editing. And like you were saying, we use Grammarly as well in our marketing organization. But I think that I would be impressed that they thought to try it for something. And then obviously we would want to put our own spin to it because we have a very unique style of writing and a very complicated investment tree that we work with. But I don't know. I think it's too soon to determine whether or not I would feel comfortable using this across the board for every piece of content that we're delivering. Right? Yeah, I think I'm not too far from where you are, which is stay close and watch how the technology evolves. The limitations of GPT-3 right now is, although it's analyzing billions of pieces of information, it is outdated information. Right. So there are some industries and some contexts where having outdated information would be horrible. Uh, Real estate, for instance, being one of them, because I think the last year that it was pulling the information from was like 2018 or something like that. So if you were to write a blog post, you know, it wouldn't be surprising to get a blog post that's like, now is the perfect time to buy a house with record low interest rates and plenty of inventory. It's time to jump on that now if you want to buy a house, which obviously that is what things were at in 2017 and 2018, and very much so not there anymore in 2023. So I think that there's places like that to be careful. But I mean, what the critics say is that AI has a bias towards discrimination of marginalized groups and that it exacerbates that. When you take a look at like AI detecting like facial recognition, the challenge is that the darker your skin, the less accurate the AI is. And so you will get a lot of false positives where the AI might say it's one person, but that actually is less accurate the darker your skin color. So there's definitely dangers there. So I think the place that I'm at right now is it's a really great tool for brainstorm where you have like writer's block. Right. And so I know for me, like doing something like brainstorm 25 articles about X, Y, and Z topic and give me a list of 20 article titles. It actually does a really great job at coming up with a variety of ideas where you know, historically, like that might be a team of three people all like thinking for a few hours, trying to come up with their favorite headlines and kind of brainstorming content ideas. At the same time, you're never going to generate something like truly unique. True. So, and, and you could never have that same sense of like, wow, I did this because there's always going to be that little thought in the back of your mind that says, actually, you didn't really do this, even if it was just pieces of this, Right. I don't know. And I'm curious what the audience will think about this because I don't agree. I don't agree with you on that one. And here's why. Like, I don't ever get this enjoyment out of doing long division where I'm just like, I just divided these two numbers and I got a great enjoyment out of not doing that on a Google sheet or in Excel. I despise long division. So I would agree. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Because I almost see this as yeah, like, 
Good point. In school, we all had to learn how to do multiplication and, and for long what division. Reason? Right. I would argue like you still kind of got to understand the basis behind it, especially like if you do truly go into econ or into like a STEM major. Also critical but, thinking as well. Yeah. And so I think that's important. But at the same time, like day to day, like I wouldn't want to give up my Google sheet for yeah. a white sheet of paper and a pencil anymore. Right. And so I think there is a time and place. And I, I do think like whether the world is ready for it or not, Pandora is out of the box and there's no putting it back in the box. But if you look at even what's gone on in financial services, you have all these robo investment platforms mm -hmm. that were created to allocate investments across a variety of asset classes based on your risk tolerance, your age, yep. your income, a whole sort of different criteria that you input. And although there was and still is a large interest in that, a personal financial advisor's role has still not gone away because it just complements and can enhance what's being done with the technology, right? So yeah, there I, I agree with that. Technology can't deliver like knowing you and knowing what your personal goals are and your behaviors and how you react to money and money matters, those things a tech platform probably can't do for you. There will always be the need for an, an in-person financial consultant, in my opinion. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. You know, I think that there will be early adopters that will adopt technology before it's even proven out. And I think that there will be 40% of the late adopters who literally will never change unless everybody that they know jumps on the adoption of whatever that thing is. You know, I think the smartphone is a good example of that, where at least in Western countries today, you have really, really high adoption. But I mean, that wasn't, you know, this thing that happened overnight when Steve Jobs got on a stage and said that he was combining a phone, a camera and internet browsing device. A lot of people were just like, why would I want that? Right. Which is insane to think about now. Yeah, I completely agree. Like the thought of carrying a standalone MP3 player <laughs> now <laughs> just, just seems really silly unless you're, I guess, running. But even if you're running now, many people would just use an Apple Watch with AirPods. Yeah, for sure. Such so, a fun conversation. Yeah. So kind of twisting a little bit, you know, this is Destination CMO. So we obviously talk about the careers of marketers. Talk to me a little bit about like your path to that CMO role. Like what are the things that you did to be able to get ready for that? What are the, some of the experiences that you feel like are necessary for somebody to be able to head in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think the ability to really understand what people do in all areas of marketing makes a lot of sense. I personally don't feel like I need to be an expert in every area. That's why I hire people that are better at what they do than what I could do. But I think it's just having an understanding of the business model and what you're trying to achieve and what the drivers of growth are for mm -hmm. that specific industry. It's not so much that the tactics or the approaches change, but I think that leadership in general is really about people and leading people. And I take that really seriously. So, you know, when I look at my team, for example, and I say this all the time to them, it's not about me. It's really about what I can help them achieve in their own careers. I mean, I'm at a stage now where I have been in this business for a really long time and 
I've got older teenage kids and, you know, it's not really about my career anymore, so to speak. It's really much more about how can I cultivate the next generation of marketers? How can I encourage people to be passionate, enthusiastic, and excited about what they're doing? And how can I create a team culture where we're all in it together and nobody lets another person on our team fail. So I think that those are things that are really important to me today at this stage in my life. I agree with you on a lot of that. I think what's really interesting about marketing is like the channels and the tactics do change, but at its core, marketing is a human to human exercise. And the true test of that has been some of the best books on copywriting and messaging the application that some of these books are talking about is like direct mail and billboards <laughs> and you know those as channels have shifted although direct mail is making a comeback but like at its core in the messaging exercise and like really great copy a lot of that has not changed and i think having a strong foundation of that as a marketer and then staying nimble as like the marketing technology changes and how you apply it is a really strong foundation. And then the other part, I think, is you've mentioned it earlier in your background is just having a good grasp around the numbers and the analytics, because yeah. like marketing today is becoming a more data driven exercise every single year. The days of not being able to have strong attribution are really behind us, but also the days of mass targeting of marketing campaigns, unless you're a consumer packaged goods or a mainstream product, which most marketers are like selling to a niche, whether it's B2B or D2C, in that niche marketing where there's a subset of the population that your product is perfect for, getting really dialed in and the segmentation and personalization abilities with technology now are just immensely different. Well, I would agree with you 100%. I mean, looking at marketing from a different lens, it's really all about behavior-driven activities mm -hmm. that trigger different communications and marketing messages based on activity that's taken typically online, either in our platform, for example, or through our website or through our social channels. So technology has changed the way that we can deliver messaging and be much more prescriptive in our approach to who we're trying to reach and with what messages based on what their activity is. Yeah, absolutely. For somebody who wants to learn more about you or you know, follow your journey, where's the best place to stay connected? Definitely catch up with me on LinkedIn, Abby Salome, and feel free to shoot me a line or reach out. It's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise, been a pleasure to be able to chat with you today. This has been Destination CMO podcast about power, business and marketing. And on this show, we have our guests share kind of their lens on the world and business and what's happening out there through that lens of being a marketer. Wherever you're watching this, make sure you like and subscribe. We'll see you on the next episode. This has been Destination CMO hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. 
For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.